Welcome to Daily Drive for Monday, August 7th, 2023. I'm Jamie Butters, Executive Editor of Automotive News here in Detroit. And I'm Kellen Walker in Las Vegas. Today on the show, GM pushes back against the UAW's demands. Lucid joins the EV price wars and Tesla's CFO steps down. Plus, we'll hear directly from UAW President Sean Fain about his union's demands. It's time that our workers get their equitable share in this economy and they're able to achieve economic justice. Let's run through all the news you need to know to keep up in the auto industry. General Motors says a list of costly contract demands laid out by UAW President Sean Fain last week is untenable. The demands include more than 40% pay raises through 2027, pensions for all workers, and protection against layoffs. They would claw back virtually every benefit UAW members have lost since they helped GM and Chrysler stay afloat in the Great Recession. Sources say the automakers have no appetite for adding long-term structural costs. In a strongly worded statement, GM pushed back against what the union proposed. It says, quote, The breadth and scope of the presidential demands at face value would threaten our ability to do what's right for the long-term benefit of the team. All the while, Fain insists he is serious about winning everything proposed. He joins us later in the show to explain why. Electric vehicle maker Lucid Motors is cutting prices of its air luxury sedans by as much as $12,400 as part of an offer. That's amid rising competition in the U.S. EV industry and a price war that Tesla sparked. Lucid lowered the price of the Air Pure by $5,000 to just over $82,000, and it cut prices of the more powerful Touring and Grand Touring versions by $12,000 each, to $95,000 and to about $126,000 respectively. It says the offer would be valid as long as supplies last. California-based Lucid is expected to show deepening second-quarter losses after the close today. Production fell in the period due to supply chain problems. Tesla says that Zachary Kirkhorn has stepped down as its chief financial officer. The company has named its accounting head, Vibov Taneja, as its new finance chief. Kirkhorn was a company veteran of 13 years. Tesla says he stepped down from the role on Friday, but he'll remain with the company through the end of the year. Tesla did not give a reason for Kirkhorn's departure. Taneja joined Tesla after the automaker acquired Solar City in 2016. He takes on the CFO role in addition to his role as chief accounting officer. And Daimler Truck says its chief financial officer, Jochen Gutz, died suddenly and unexpectedly over the weekend. Gutz was 52. Daimler Truck says he died in a, quote, tragic incident without providing further details. The company says he spent more than 36 years at Daimler Group after starting his career as an apprentice at Mercedes-Benz. The company's statement didn't immediately identify a successor. And those are today's headlines. Jamie, to no surprise, well, at least to me, GM, in more or less words, ain't having it with the UAW's list of demands. What do you think this says for the union moving forward? And do you think there's a possibility that they'll ease up on their demands? You know, it says that we're in the very early stages of negotiations. You know, the, the union is laying out everything they want. Sean Fain says not to call it a wish list, but in many ways it is. He's spent a lot of time listening to his members and all of the things they want. 
He doesn't want to fail to take any of them to the automakers and wants to get as much of it as he can. As we get closer to the contract expiration, if workers go out on strike, I mean, compromises are going to be made. They're going to have to be made. Right now, we're at this stage where everybody's asking for everything and also saying what they're not going to tolerate. Well, with that said, coming up, UAW President Sean Fain talks with our own Michael Martinez in detail about his union's contract demands. That's next on Daily Drive. Hi, I'm Pete Bigelow, host of Shift, a podcast about mobility from Automotive News. Each week, I bring you a conversation with leaders who are on the cutting edge of transportation, like this one with consultant and strategist Salika Josiah Talbot. The technologists are forcing themselves in a space that they shouldn't be. And I think the social scientists and politicians are falling down on the job. To hear more about the new technology and policy reshaping the way people and goods move around, join me on Shift. New episodes each Sunday on autonews.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Daily Drive. I'm Jamie Butters with Kellen Walker. To say this year's UAW contract negotiations are off to an unusual start is probably an understatement. As we mentioned earlier in the show, the union's demands are extraordinary. 40% plus pay raises, pensions for all, a 32-hour work week. Those are just some of the highlights. But the union's approach is also out of the ordinary. New President Sean Fain is making all of these demands in public, admittedly raising expectations for what workers will get out of the deals. Fain spoke with our own Michael Martinez, who covers the UAW and Ford Motor Company for Automotive News. They spoke about the union's demands and whether workers' expectations could get in the way of ratifying a deal. President Fain, thanks for doing this. Thank you. Uh, I'll I'll hop right in. wanted to ask a broad question about the member demands you laid out the other day. Uh Um, Curious how you want members to view those uh, should, should, or even the media, should we think of it as like a wish list or would you expect, do you want members to expect to get every single thing on that list? Well, these are, as we retitled these, there are the members demands. These aren't my demands. Um, This is a culmination of, you know, a year of me campaigning for this job, hearing members uh, on the work sites, listening to their issues, their concerns, uh, since we've been elected, the same thing. I mean, this is a culmination of things the members submitted that they want to see change. So, yeah, I mean, that, this, is, this isn't, uh, you know, some wish list. It's uh, these companies that, you know, have made a quarter of a trillion dollars in the last decade. As you can tell by their earnings reports last week, uh, they're on track to make record profits again this year. Uh, predictions are, you know, that they're going to continue to make record profits. Uh, our workers deserve. Our workers have, have delivered these companies in the best of times and the worst of times, and you know it, it's time that they get their equal share and get economic justice. I mean, the majority of our, our workers in Big Three right now hired in after 2007. You know, it took them years to get the full pay. They don't have pensions. They don't have post-retirement health care. It's a very different standard that they're working under uh, than than in the past. Wanted to ask a couple. Uh, follow-up details on some of the the items. Uh, you mentioned double-digit pay raises. Are you seeking double-digit raises each year of the contract, or would that be a total over the course of the contract? Oh, but, you know, it's over the course. Uh, you, know, I, I, you know, I tie this to, you know, the companies talk about being competitive all the time, and, you know, it's, it's odd to me that anytime it, it reflects on the members or something that's good for the members, they, they want to talk about competition, but 
when it comes to their pay and how they're treated, competition doesn't matter. The CEOs of the big three over the last four-year agreement have enjoyed a 40% increase in pay and salaries on average. So, you know, I don't think uh, our workers asking for their equitable share when inflation's went up relative to almost 20% in the last uh, four years. Uh, I don't think it's asking a lot for our members to uh, to look for their fair share. And, and I'll also remind you, members, members' wages alone since 2007 to today over the last 16 years have regressed. Hmm. Uh, when a member got promoted to full-time in 07, they hired it at $19 and 60 some cents an hour. Today, when they go to full-time, they start at 1804. Uh, so we have regressed in wages while the companies have made record profits. That's got to change. Fair point. On the temporary worker item, you mentioned uh-huh. you'd like to see uh, some more strict rules on the use. Uh, I believe the cap today is at 8%. Do you have a specific percentage you'd like to see that reduced to? So I'm not as concerned with the cap as I am with temporary work has to be just that. It has to be temporary work. Gotcha. Uh, we have temporary workers that are working seven days a week, 12 hours a day, and have been for years. That's not temporary work. That's full-time work. And the company is robbing these workers of their, their fair share and their stake in this economy. So, you know, as I said, it's good. temporary work should be just that. It should be summer vacation replacement type workers or, you know, the Friday through Monday temps. Uh, no, but it should not be workers working seven days a week. Gotcha. I know this wasn't on the list, but you had mentioned pushing for a 32-hour work week. I'm wondering if you could lay out the reasoning there. I'm, I'm a bit confused because I'm wondering if, you know, if you are able to negotiate significant wage gains, but yet you reduce the hours per week, wouldn't that sort of nullify some of the wage gains? So what's the thinking behind the 32-hour work week? Well, if if COVID revealed one thing, if anything positive came out of such a bad thing, it's that it made people reflect on what's important in life. And what's what's not important is people working seven days a week, 12 hours a day, missing out on family life and, and, and being able to have hobbies and do things they enjoy. So, you know, we're looking at a 32-hour work week with 40 hours pay. And, of course, you know, gotcha. obviously, if, if uh, you know, the companies have to operate on those off days, then there are overtime premiums and stuff that, that increase pay. We're not saying workers can't work overtime or workers can't work on weekends, but it shouldn't be mandated. It shouldn't be forced. It should be optional. Gotcha. And, and do you think that by maybe moving to a, a 32-hour week, uh, th- that might prompt additional hiring for uh, additional members? Yeah, definitely. I think it'll create more jobs, more opportunities for more people to get their share in the economy. Also wanted to ask about the Working Family Protection Plan. Sounds uh-huh. a lot like the, the former Jobs Bank. I'm uh-huh. w- wondering why you think something like that is necessary uh, to implement today and moving forward. Well, I mean, uh, that's funny. Uh, you know, we were villainized. It's not funny. It's sad that we were villainized during the recession, you know, for workers, uh, you know, when they close a plant or they, you know, have layoffs for workers, uh, you know, receiving pay basically so we can keep paying their bills and keep the economy going and keep the economy from crashing. You know, Walter Ruther once said nothing breeds unemployment like unemployment. You know, when a 10,000 members are laid off in a community, it affects several other thousands of workers that are in the, in the other jobs that, uh, these workers spend their money. And so, you know, that was the intent behind the old jobs bank was that we never want people to be paid to do nothing, but there are circumstances where the companies even now have been profitable and they've chosen to shut our plants 
and workers are left hung out high and dry. And, and you know, the, you know, there, there's been a great test case uh, in in our opinion for in, in support of this. If you look at what happened during COVID, what happened when uh, when the government paid money to people, you know, to families to keep families able to uh, spend money, and they went out and spent money in the economy and kept the economy going. It's the same thing, same concept. It works. And the criminal part of this, to me, also is that during the Great Recession, as the UAW and, and our workers were being villainized for having a job bank program. Toyota was being celebrated at the same time for paying their employees and not laying them off. So, you know, there's a double standard here and, and, and it can't be that way. You can't, you can't celebrate one company who doesn't have a union and say they're great because they paid their employees through the uh, recession when they weren't at work and then you villainize another and say it's not competitive. That's, that's a fair point. The other side of that coin, though, I, I think some would argue that you know, while not the entire fault, the, the things like the jobs bank or, you know, different type of legacy structural costs certainly didn't help the automakers in their financial situation at the time. And that adding structural costs like that back in would be uh, a burden, uh, a difficult thing for them. What they don't like to talk about in those legacy costs and, the, you know, we were villainized for also, such as pensions, everyone forgets that the money was there, okay? The companies were supposed to pay the money into the funds so that when workers retire, that money's there. But the story they don't like to tell is how they steal the money. They borrow it and they spend it. They don't put it back in. And then they cry years later that the money's not there. They don't tell the flip side of that, how they blew the damn money. Hmm. The money should be put there and be left alone. Um, so, you know, when we hear about legacy costs and all that stuff, all that is, you know, it, it, when it's a problem, it's because of the irresponsibility of the companies. The workers can't control that, and that's and it's, it's wrong. I did want to ask a question just in general as you begin to bargain and negotiate about uh, membership expectations. Uh, you, you've been very vocal, very transparent through social media with the membership, but I wonder if you see a risk of potentially raising expectations too high, which could hurt you know potential efforts to, to get any tentative agreement ratified. Not at all. I mean... Uh... My expectations are high, and I know the membership's expectations are high. That's how we set these demands. Um, these companies have made a quarter of a trillion dollars over the last decade, and they are, as we said earlier, continuing to make record profits. Workers deserve their fair share in this. Our workers, in the worst of times and the best of times, have always delivered for these companies. And when bad times happen, our workers are always to blame for everything that's wrong, and they always pay the price. They make the sacrifices. Our workers and retirees in the, in the economic recession made the bulk of sacrifices and they were villainized for everything that was wrong with these companies. And that's not what that's not what put these companies in that position. So it's it's time that our workers get their equitable share in this economy and they're able to achieve economic justice. Uh, the majority of our members hired in after 2007 and they scraped to get by for years now and they still scraped to get by. There's no reason for that. Uh, you know, it's criminal that Mary Barra is making $30 million in one year. And when you break down her salary and you look at an Altium worker that's hiring in at 16 something an hour, it takes that worker 16 years to make what she makes in a week. There is something wrong with this system if that's acceptable to people. I guess, uh, I guess what I'm getting at just to follow up uh, is, you know, talking about eliminating tiers or pensions for all workers, restoring COLA. 
you know, if at the end of the day you, you make progress on some of those, but not necessarily get everything, say the path to full pay gets cut from eight years down to four years or two years or one year, whatever that may be. If you're able to make significant progress, it still may not be everything that you've said in the demands or that you've promised. And if I'm a worker, you know, would there be a risk of them saying, well, I'm, I'm going to vote that contract down because that's not everything I was promised? Well, first off, I promised nothing. Okay. Except we're, going to, except, except we're going to work really hard to get the best agreement we can for our members. And at the end of the day, this agreement's up to the membership. This is their contract. They're going to vote on it. And, you know, if they're not happy with it, they don't think it goes far enough, then they have every right to turn it down. It's up to the companies to uh, satisfy the demands of this membership. So, gotcha. And if they choose not to, then, you know, we'll be where we have to be. No, I'm running short on time, but I did want to ask. How do you and, and your leadership team view other recent deals, whether it's the, the Teamsters and UPS or even uh, what the UAW was able to negotiate a couple of years ago with, with John Deere or, or Caterpillar or CNH? Should those be seen as, as templates for what you want to try to achieve with the big three? Um, I, just, I just think every round of bargaining is different. Every situation is different. Um, you know, the Teamsters were able to achieve their goals and hats off to them. Uh, Deer, you know, was a different situation. It took, uh, I believe, three, I think it was voted down two or three times before the members accepted the end result. And um, so, you know, there, yeah, there are similarities, but, you know, uh, there's always, you know, nuances to every every different company and what we're looking to pursue here. So, I mean, the members at the big three have their demands and their, what they want to see change. And, and it's up to us to negotiate that as hard as we can with the companies and, and get a resolution that the membership's happy with. Gotcha. Why do you think now is the right time? Why do you think your leadership is the right leadership team to get the contract that you want? You could argue in 2019 and 2015, those were those were good times. The union had a, a strong position heading into talks. But why do you think now you'll be able to deliver when in, in the past uh, the union maybe has not delivered? Well, if you've looked at the UAW's leadership, especially from 2015 forward, uh, we've had very, very bad priorities. And uh, the priorities weren't the membership. And that's the beauty of direct elections. Uh, it, holds your, it holds your leadership accountable to the membership, which is how it should be. I've never had a problem being held accountable by the membership. Our leadership in the past wasn't. They handpicked their successors. You know, they controlled the outcome. So uh, it's unfortunate that our leaders in 15 and 19 didn't pursue the things that they should have, such as cost of living being reinstated and more equitable wage increases or things like that. But this is our time, and uh, the economy is right. The profits have been through the roof for over a decade, and our members deserve their fair share, and, and this leadership is willing to fight for it alongside the membership. UAW President Sean Fain spoke with our own Michael Martinez. That's Daily Drive for today. I'm Jamie Butters. And I'm Kellen Walker. Thanks to Automotive News Coordinating Producer Jake Neer for his help on today's podcast. You can get the latest news on UAW contract negotiations, EV price wars, and everything happening in the auto industry at autonews.com. Come back tomorrow for a conversation with the Executive Director of the Autonomous Vehicle Industry Association, Jeff Farah, about the challenge of anti-AV sentiment and efforts to revive federal legislation. If you enjoy the podcast, remember to like, leave a review, and subscribe so you never miss an episode.